0: We ask that you really can cleanse our hearts and to change us, cause us to repent, allow us to see uh, the way that you see us as wretched sinners and in, in, in need of redemption. Lord, allow the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin so that we can put off and cut off sin in our life and more than just the external appearance but a genuine heart change, Lord. Lord, help us <clears throat> to confront Sin in our own life and to humbly repent. Thank you for the time in your word and your son's precious name. Amen. All of us have to deal with pollution in one way or another. And depending on the environmentalist, they will cite that throughout all of humankind, there has always been this struggle between humans and, the, and their planet. Some groups claim that preserving the planet came. Years and years and years ago, they will cite old ancient texts and claim that this is something that even the ancients understood. They will cite things like the scriptures or even Gilgamesh, all of these ancient texts, and they will try to extrapolate and really eisegete, um certain narratives to say, see, even back then people understood that they need to protect the planets. In fact, they would even twist some of these old texts to try and make it seem as though that whenever we see some calamity in those ancient texts, it is because the people failed to take care of the planet. That if they don't do this now in the present day, that they're doomed to suffer, just like those in the past. However, what you and I think in terms of the modern environmentalist movement actually began around the 19th century after the Second World War, there was an act that was in place that the government put in after World War to say, hey, let's start taking care of the, the forests and the rivers and the, the ocean and try to clean up the planet because, you know, the world went through a lot during the Second World War. As time progressed, environmental will try to make people believe that in order for you to be a good person, you need to take care of the planet. The moral standard in our modern day is how well do you protect the planet? Uh, this past Sunday, we were out doing door-to-door evangelism, and one of our high schoolers went with us, and we went to one of the ha- homes, and it just so happened a high schooler came out, and she was trying to share the gospel with her, and she asked the, this neighbor, if you were to die today, why would God let you into heaven? And this other high schooler that she was, uh, that our high schooler was talking to uh, wasn't a believer, um... And she just, she, was a, she was from, she was a, has a Jewish background. She claims the reason why I should get into heaven is because I take care of the planet and I am a good person. And you understand? That's just how the world thinks now. It's just become almost like its own religion, and that a good person is determined by what you do on the outside, For particularly in the planet. We see that there are certain. Deeds and thoughts that you need to have in order to prove that you're a good person, whether that is some sort of recycling or, or, or having some sort of drive a certain type of car. But we understand as Christians that there is a greater and more pressing issue than what happens to the planet. Now, I'm not saying that you should not take care of the planet or be a good steward of that, but understand that there is something greater, that even Jesus himself talks about how we don't worry about the things that will destroy the body, but rather fear the one that can destroy body and soul. Don't worry about the calamities that come from all the natural disasters. Worry more about what God thinks of you. Jesus is saying that, again, dealing with pollution on the outside is secondary compared to the pollution that goes on in the inside of us. There is something more lethal to us than things like global warming or climate change. Rather, it's the pollution that is inside our own heart. The world will focus on things outside of them and think that we need to make things outside clean in order to to maintain a good status in the world. But the Bible is clear that what is more important for us is to deal with the pollution that is within us. We are our own toxin. We all need some internal washing, and and we cannot do it from outside or even do it from within. The battle of holiness begins in your own heart, and you cannot do it by yourself. In fact, it reveals what's in your heart and the things that you do. All of the bad things that we do in the world is a result of our own sinfulness, It is from within. We are born with this defiled heart. That's what we're going to look at this evening. That the heart of man is that there is filled with sin. Uh, we've been going through the book of Mark. If some of you who may be new here, moving we'll through verse by verse. And if you remember, chapter six, uh, at the end of chapter or toward the end of chapter six, Jesus and the disciples were supposed to go for rest after, um, but they were intercepted by a, a multitude of individuals, and Jesus fed the five thousand people. And when they, uh, were, after they were feeding the 5,000, Jesus tells them, go ahead, go across the Sea of Galilee. And uh, they went through a storm. And this is a familiar text to us because we remember how uh, the storm came and Jesus was praying and seeing them from a distance. And he walks across and he tells them to not be afraid. Then that is, again, to authenticate the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he is both human and completely divine chapter 7, we talked about how the Pharisees were really, in a lot of ways, judging the disciples of Jesus Christ, that they were following them and stalking them, and, and they were asking Jesus, why doesn't your people, your disciples, the people that, that follow you, why don't they uphold the traditions of man? And Jesus told them that these individuals, these religious leaders are hypocrites because they're really good at, at taking, setting aside the command of God. And there was that crowd that came up all around them, the religious leader that came around them questioning Jesus, and Jesus rebukes them and rebuttals their their arguments. Now we get to this point here in verse 14. It says that after he called the crowd to him, again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. Now again, this this situation was going on that when early on in chapter 7, in verse 1, it said that the Pharisees and the scribes gathered around them. And now, it seems that like after Jesus rebuked and destroyed their arguments, they kind of fled away, and the crowd has returned. Uh, it was probably, it was what probably happened was that when uh, people saw Jesus, they were interested in him. They wanted their families and relatives to be healed. But when they saw the religious leader, they were intimidated, and they went away. Uh, so now, uh, after be- the Pharisees, the religious leader, after being rebuked, they left. And now the crowd has returned. And Jesus is talking with them. He's he's bringing these individuals back, and he wants to continue on his little lesson here. He tells them to listen to me, all of you, and understand. And you'll notice that it says, listen to me and understand. There is an implication here that you can listen to God's word and yet not understand what he's trying to say. This is like us in a lot of ways. Sometimes we can come into church, we can go to Sunday school, we can listen to a certain podcast, we can absorb a, a tremendous amount of data and information, but yet we may not understand how that impacts our worship. We can hear a lot of things, but yet it doesn't change our hearts. It doesn't make us live differently. And that shows that you don't understand the things that you're hearing. And Jesus is c- commanding the individuals here to listen to him and to understand. And that's what we need to have as well. When we listen to God's word, it's not just, it, it doesn't mean anything if you just show up Friday nights or on Sundays to just hear the sermon. You know, a lot of us could do that. A lot of us could take notes on our iPads, or our, our notebooks, could write in our Bibles, but it means absolutely nothing if you do not understand the implications of your life. If, you, if you're not transformed or changed at all, then listening to God's word is completely meaningless. And Jesus is calling them, just like how Scripture calls us, to listen to God and to understand him. Verse 15, there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile him. Again, Jesus is trying to explain to the crowd what just happened earlier. The Pharisees were saying, you need to do all of these external things to make yourself holy. They have this mindset that if you're, in order for you to be holy, you need to be completely separate from the world. And we understand that being away from certain things or certain places does not make you holy. The proximity away from sin does not make you holy because sin lies within us. And he's telling them, Jesus here is teaching them, that is not what you do on the outside. He's trying to counter these religious leaders here. He's saying that there's nothing outside the man which can defile him. And this is the word defile, it's, it's ongoing. It's just, there's nothing you can do that could continue defile him. Is that if it goes into the body, but things proceed out of the man, or what defiles them. Sin comes from the heart. And you and I, our biggest problem in life is the sin that lies within. It. And he uses this illustration that I think we understand. That if it's food that goes into the body, it's not like the food itself makes you holy or makes you unclean. It doesn't do anything. It says that, if food goes into body, but the things, and this is known as plural, which proceed out of the man, are what defiles him. This is like, you could eat this one food and it doesn't change you. But what actually comes out, all the, the multitude of things that comes out of you, that is what uh, defiles a man. Because then it tells you that the, it's not some sort of external problem, it's an internal problem. It's what's going on on the inside. Okay, this whole thing is really a response to chapter 5. Of verse 7 said, the Pharisees and the scribes asked them, why do, you, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And Jesus is telling them, stating something that to them was profound. The crowd, they, they need to learn, or mainly relearn, that what, it doesn't matter what you do with your hands. Because what you do with your hands does not make you holy or unholy. Rather, it's what's going on inside of you. Now, you notice that during my scripture reading here, I skipped verse 16. And some of your, I think, in the NASB, it has these brackets I said, in it, And if anyone has ears, let him hear. For some of you who may not understand what these brackets mean, it means that, um, the, like, originally, uh, when they were translating. But well, when they have to the scroll of the Bible, uh, mainly the King James, uh, there was a limited amount of scrolls that they had, um, meaning that there was a certain date to the scrolls. Um, but then they found over time the, there are even older manuscripts that omit this passage here. But even though that, and that's why these brackets basically saying it was the oldest manuscript that we have right now does not have this word or this phrase or this verse. And... Even though the original manuscript does not have this, this is not a new thing that Jesus has said. Like, you can actually infer in other passages this is something that Jesus would say. Right? If you look at the book of Revelation, Jesus tells all the seven churches, uh, those who have ears, let them hear. You have to wonder, why is this here? Well, it could be that, that sometimes when the people were uh, translating uh, the Bible or copying the Bible, uh, they just saw this little disconnect here, and they thought that to help smoothen out the story, they'll kind of insert this thing here. I'm not going to get into all the details because at the end of Mark, there's a whole section that's completely missing. Um, so we'll get there once we get there. But just understand that even though this phrase and this verse is not in uh, this original manuscript, the, I- <coughs> the idea is still there. Because Jesus would tell them to, those who have in the ear, let them hear. He said it over again even in other passages like Mark chapter 2 verse 1 or Mark chapter 3 verse 20 and Matthew chapter 15 verse 15. So... That's just that. Just so, if you're wondering, how do you answer those textual criticism type questions? Uh, get just wait until we get to the end of the book of Mark. But that's just a real summary answer. Verse 17: uh, When he had left the crowd, and uh, when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. So it seems that the disciples they were with Jesus, and they were you know they saw the, how Jesus handled the Pharisees and handled the crowd. And now they want to know the answer. They they went indoors to this one particular place, and they, they needed clarification of what Jesus was saying. Um, the disciples seemed to be shocked and unsure uh, uh, what was going on. Uh, even they at times struggled with the things that they were hearing. And you have to wonder: Was Jesus, when in verse 14, said, "Listen and understand," was he speaking to his disciples only, or is he speaking to the crowd? And I think it's both. So I think he, I think there is a sense in which he's speaking to his disciples because. The next verse he tells him, uh, verse eighteen, "Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not go, because it does not go into his heart but his stomach and is eliminated? thus he declared all foods clean and uh, basically to summarize here is like, use your mind, think about this what, 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 do you really not understand what I'm trying to get, say here? yet despite this, Jesus is incredibly patient in terms of explaining God's word to them. And this is, again, a humble reminder to us. Uh, when we talk about discipleship in the context of the church, there are going to be people that come into your life that's going to ask very basic Christian questions. And if you are in the church long enough, you're in the faith long enough, you'll find that there you'll, you, there's like almost like a, it's like a circle of life in the Christian church. There's just certain questions that people will always ask you. And the older you get, it will cycle through People will ask you about how do you read your Bible, which is a good question to ask, and you have to explain that. And someone else might ask you the same type of question, or they'll ask you life questions that seem very repetitive, but yet understand that this is just how the Christian life is. That you need a tremendous amount of patience in terms of discipleship, in terms of pouring out into other people. And Jesus did just that, despite the fact that the disciples heard this parable, uh, despite the fact that He taught them, He showed His divinity he was still patient enough to explain it to them. And you'll see that verse 19, he explains it, that it's not what goes in the heart, but into the stomach, and goes into the, some translation uses the word sewer, and uh, and NASB uses the word um, eliminated, and we know what that means, it just means that it's something that's just spoiled. And he's trying to get to this idea that it's not what goes on on the outside, but the inside. You know, in my fridge, sometimes we have expired food, and well, the solution is not to go and take a baby wipe and clean the outside of the milk carton or the bag of salad. You know, if it's expired, it's expired. Nothing you do to the outside is going to change what's going on, on the inside. I mean, that's what Jesus is trying to get at. He tried to tell them that it doesn't matter what's going on, on the outside. You can clean the whole outside, but if the inside is corrupted, and you don't address those issues. Then, it, then you're not going to be clean. Yeah, here it's interesting. This in verse 19 it said at the very end. Thus he declared all foods clean. You have to remember in the last several <coughs> excuse me in the last several weeks, uh, I've always alluded to the fact that if you were the original audience, how this would make you feel, uh, how this would make you think. Remember, remember, the original audience were Gentiles. They were Christians that gave up uh, their life to follow Jesus, and they. And they tried to understand what does it mean to truly follow Christ. And certain passages gave them assurance. It gave them hope. And this one really gave them assurance that whatever you eat, that doesn't matter. That is not what makes you holy or unholy. It does not make you clean or unclean. And it's fascinating because this is actually the very first time in in the whole New Testament that he declares it unclean. But you have to wonder, what about Acts chapter 10? Wasn't there an instance in Acts chapter 10 where Peter gets a dream? Which, again, shows you that even Peter failed to grasp the things that Jesus said, that he doesn't remember. Because this event happened way before Pentecost. And yet, uh, when, it, when he got to, when Peter, he, ha, he actually is the writer, I think, of Mark. So he, he's like really showing his humility here that uh, he, doesn't, he, he doesn't always, even Peter at the point where as an apostle has moments where he struggled in terms of grasping truth. In Acts chapter 10, uh, P- Peter got a vision that he can eat all these different animals uh, and it's not unclean anymore and the dietary law is over and now he can minister to Gentiles which is what this gospel is. This gospel is designed, is written for a Gentile audience. So in some sense, the fact that you look at the book of Acts, you look at the whole gospel of Mark, you see the progression in Peter's growth as a believer. He didn't understand it then. He didn't understand it in Acts 10. And he really understood afterwards when he, see, when he met Cornelius and he understood God's providence in all things. And when it was time when he was old enough to, to really write down the gospel of Mark, he just reflecting back on his life that he actually learned this at one point. It wasn't just a dream, but that that made him convicted that Jesus actually remind, told him about this years and years ago. So you see, even in this case, that like, Jesus is patient. In, uh, Jesus is just so kind and patient with, all, with us and even with the apostles that in our life, the, sometimes it takes years to grasp what is so simple to other people. Right, if you're a Gentile, you think, why is that a big deal? But for someone like Peter, it took time to get there. And yet that's just a part of what sanctification is like. It just takes time. If you're a believer, you'll find that some people in your life are going to be weaker in the faith. They're just, they're just things that are just harder for them to get over, and that's okay. Just like how Peter, it took him time to understand that it's okay to eat whatever food, um, because those things, food is not what defiles a man. Now, we get into verse 21, or 20. It says, uh, he sa- and he was saying that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles a man. Verse 21 here, he, then he lists the whole list of sins. From, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, theft, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, and foolishness. You look at this list. And you see that there's actually 12 things here. The first six are our actions, or our attitudes, and the last six are our actions. The first six, there's here, like from sexual immoralities, theft, murders, adulteries, covering, wicked. weakness. Sorry, these are the actions. And then the other sides are, are uh, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. These are more towards like attitudes. And Jesus speaks in this way, saying that. This is what makes, this is out of an evil heart. All of these things will come about. It says, for from within, in verse 21. Again, this implies that the Jewish thought that there is this assumption that evil comes from outside. And again, they should know this, right? The Jewish leaders, they should have known this. Because they had the Old Testament. They had the book of Genesis. They, they know even verses like Genesis 6 where it said the, the evilness inside of man's heart is just, they just continually do evil things. But yet somehow they, they miss it because they put all of these traditions and think that failing to do the traditions is what makes you evil. And yet Jesus is telling them, for from, from within out of the heart. The heart here is, is just like mission control, the thing that controls your desires and your ambitions and your, and your love, all of those things, your control center. That is the thing that determines whether or not you are a good or evil good or bad person. Jesus then said, uh, it proceeds. It, it's, it's, this is what the crowd wanted to know. Where does the evil come from? And Jesus explains that it is from within. Now also understand that this list is not exhaustive. Like this is just six, 12 different things, but they're not, this isn't a complete list, right? We look at the whole New Testament, there are other things there as well, uh, but these are just six, these are just 12 that Jesus has just brought up. And it says here, proceed the evil thoughts. Proverbs 23, verse 7 says that the things that you think of, that's who you are. And it's to show you that what you dwell on the most is a reflection of what's going on in your own heart. And out of that outflow of your heart, you will do these things. Again, this is supposed to let us know that as Christians, the way that we think about things matter. We cannot be people that take our minds, um, and, just, and not engage with our minds. The Christi- Christianity is primarily, yes, it's spiritual, but it, it, it engages the mind. You have to think through things. Uh, we were made with a mind to use for the glory of God. So you have to be very careful in what you put in your mind and the things that you watch, the things that you listen to, because it will impact you. You have to be very discerning because what goes into your mind you have, to, you, have to, you have to control the things that goes into your mind. This is why in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul writes to the Philippian church that whatever is pure, whatever that is lovely, whatever that is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And it implies here, and even in Scripture, that it takes work, it takes time, it takes effort to guard your mind. Because if you do not guard your mind, that tells you that there's something wrong with your heart. Your heart loves to dwell on certain things and therefore that's where your mind will go. And when your mind will eventually get to a point where you start acting on those things. So it says here that first thing is the sexual immoralities. This is the idea of in the, in, the, in the original language, it's the word for "pornéo," pornography. Uh, it's any sexual sins outside of marriage, which really encompass all sexual sin. And, and any type of thought that is out of the bounds of God's uh, standard of what uh, where sex is supposed to be in the context of marriage. Anything outside of those bounds is a sin against. The, it's a sin against the Lord. Notice that He also said uh, thefts. That's like. Uh, that's this word is klepto, where we get kleptomania. Those are people that have the desire to steal things. It's taking something that doesn't belong to you. Uh, next one is murderers. This is is taking up, um, is taking another person's life. Uh, adulteries. These are it's, it's, the word is it's a desire for another person's spouse. It's any violation of your marital commitments. Then it says coveting—that's wanting something that other people have—and um, really, it's it's uh, it's this feeling that we have that others that we want something that other people have. So in our context, it could be if someone has a promotion and you want that. How come I? Why was I missed in terms of why was I overlooked for the promotion? Why didn't I get the raise? That's coveting right there. Or in some cases, if you. Have a job, and you and you you know, get laid off, and you and you question why am I, why do I, why did I get laid off, and not that other person, or why does that person uh, doesn't uh, have more work than I do when I have more talent than he does? It's just anything that makes you look at another person and say, "I deserve better. I want what they have." And all of that stems from a heart of of wickedness, which is actually next one, wickedness. That's anything against God's law. And it's, that's a wide range of things. Anything that you do deliberately against God's word. So when the Bible tells you not to do something and your heart craves those things, that's the thing that you go after. That's what wickedness is. Now, that's the first six. And the last six are more uh, is more action or more attitude-based. You see this, this uh, is deceit. Uh, this is this idea of half-truth or lying or, or actually this word, deceit, is the same word that the Greek used to describe the Trojan horse. There's like the, the Trojan horse that went in to deceive Troy. That's the idea here. It's, it's a, something that is supposed to be deceptive. It's, it's intentionally trying to manipulate things for your own purpose, it's for your own selfish purposes. Next one is sensuality, sensuality, which is any idea of just a dirty mind. It, means, it encompasses things like even like inappropriate jokes, um, it's sexual thoughts as it shows that you are someone that lacks complete self-control. This, again, it's not just only what you do in your mind because out of your, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So sometimes the things that you talk about, the things that you joke about, it may seem harmless. It may seem like it's just, oh, we're just having fun. But understand that the reason why you would say things as hurtful to other people is because your mind is corrupted. You have this dirty mind, so you will say things that are inappropriate with a, deliberate, uh, with a deliberate purpose of just entertaining yourself and other people. But yet, at the same time, Scripture tells us that we need to flee from all kinds of evil. Think about the way that you talk to people. How you talk to people reflects what's going on in your heart. If you are someone that always talks about childish things, chances are you are an immature and childish person. If you talk about mature things, that that reveals what's in your heart, that you care about adult things. You care about things that actually have eternal significance. But a, a childish person, a naive person, a person that is sensual in their thoughts, will, will always find ways to just entertain themselves and other people because their mind is broken. Their hearts is toward the things that are sensual. The next one here is envy. This is if you could translate literally, it means an evil eye. That means you look at other people with a kind of hatred and evil. Uh, you don't want what, you don't like the fact that other people have something that you want. You know, I know in our in this particular group, a lot of you are single, and it can be, you can fall into this trap into thinking why why is that person dating or why is that person engaged or why is that person married. And I'm not. You could think of those things. That the reason why you think of those things is because you, you have this evil eye. You envy them. You want something that they have and you don't want them to have it, but they have it. And that frustrates you. And why is that? Because in your own heart, you believe that you are a good person. You believe that you deserve better. And the fact that you don't get that, you're a sense angry with the, with the Lord for giving other people things and not you. And just know that in Romans chapter 12, it tells us to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who weep. Someone that is who has this evil eye will rejoice when people are weeping and weep when others are rejoicing. It's this twisted mind that they have because they're in their own hearts they don't want other people to have good things because they themselves think that they deserve the good thing. Next one, after envious slander, this is um, similar to what Pastor Roger preached on uh, on Sunday, it's the same idea of blaspheme. It's, it's, it's intending to harm others with your words. You deliberately want to say something to hurt other people. Now again, this is, goes back to what I said earlier about the things that you talk about. There's nothing wrong with humor. I think the Bible has humorous statements at times. But sometimes we can cross the line in the way that we put down people. It's, it's fun to kind of, in our minds, joke about things, but we, realize, we have to remember that when we are putting someone down, we're tearing them down, we're speaking ill of someone that's made in the image of God. Our culture, and even sometimes even the Christian culture, thinks that if we're saved by faith through grace, then therefore I don't need to do anything. I don't need to guard my tongue. But you have to understand that the Bible speaks... That a fool is someone that cannot control their own tongue. In in the book of James, and again, this is what Roger talked about on Sunday, that if you can control your tongue, you will be perfect. Because so much of the conflicts that we have in the church or in the workplace and just in life in general are because of things that we say. And yet the heart of all of that, you say things not because it's just, oh, it's for fun, but because in your own heart, this is what you love. You love to tear people down you love to hurt people with your words. You love to destroy and break down and tear down what God has built up. That's what a slanderer would do. It goes to the next one, pride. This is the one that that tries to look down on other people. They boast about the things that they accomplish. And understand pride and self-pity are the same thing. Sometimes we have this false humility that we think like, oh, I'm not worthy. And you know, we, we try to come across as more humble than we really think. And that's also a form of pride. Self-pity could be the opposite. It's, it's really just another form of pride. The point is that you're trying to get people to look at you a certain way. And the Pharisees were like that. They think, oh, well, look, I'm, I'm, look at my life. I'm, I'm so separate from the world. I'm not indulging in things of the world. Look how lowly I am. But this is just another form of pride to get people to look at them, to praise them. Much like what pride, that's what the the positive end, or the the not really positive, the opposite, is that you think highly of yourself and you want other people to praise you. Whether it's self-pity or pride, both of them are really the same thing. It's to just try to get other people to compliment you or to look highly of you. And last one on this list is foolishness. This is someone that knows what the right thing to do is, knows what God's word has to say, and deliberately choose the opposite. He's living as if God doesn't exist. This is what Proverbs talks about how um, the foolish man says in his heart that there is no God. Now again, before you criticize the the non-believer, understand that this can be us as well. When we live a very foolish life, when we make foolish choices, what we are what we're saying with our actions is that God does not exist, that I do not operate off a Christian worldview, that I live as if God is not there. That is what a foolish person does. And you have to think about your life, that as Christians, we need to live wisely. And the way that you know true wisdom is from God's word and the principles there or the commands, you know what these things are and you try to live your life according to those biblical principles and commands because that is what a wise person would do. A foolish person knows what God's word has to say and deliberately chooses to ignore them. At the heart of all of these things is a person with a wicked heart. And Jesus is saying all of these things that you see here, and obviously there's more, but these 12 here, all of these things here, the reason why you do all of these things is because you are wicked on the inside. Verse 23, all these things proceed from within and defile the man. Again, the reason why we sin is because we're sinners. It's not that we do the act and then we're called sinners. Rather, it's because we're sinners by nature. That's why we do these things. So what are we supposed to do with this? What is the application? Aside from just repentance, and that's true. But here's just two Kind of takeaway points and application that I have for us. First is this only God can rescue us from ourselves. Only God can rescue us from ourselves. All of us are corrupted, and even the seemingly good things that you do will not get you into heaven because God looks at our heart and He sees how wicked we are. This is why only God can save you. If you look at this list, And you think to yourself, well, I don't do all of them. I only do like maybe two or three of them. That doesn't make me a bad person. Well, even the one or two things, that's enough to send you to hell. I have a friend that said there's enough sin in the tip of your pinky finger to send you to hell. And that's true. Even the smallest part of us, there's not a, a cell in our body that is not tainted and corrupted by sin. All of us are sinners. Even if, if you commit one or two of these, or, once or tw- one or two of these once or twice in a lifetime, that is enough to condemn you. Your good works or your evil works, or your, sorry, your good works in life will not be able to cover a smidge of your sin. We are not good people just based on what we do externally. You can try to do your best uh, to not do any of the things on this list, but that's still trusting in your own works, which puts us in this state of like double jeopardy, right? Because sometimes a self-righteous person can, on the surface, do like, not do the things here on the list, but God sees it. At the same time, we are all condemned because all of us will do all 12 of these things. In our, in our, in our own hearts, these are things that come out of it. So there's really nothing that we can do to, get, to obtain salvation. There's, there's no situation in which we can do enough good works and trusting our own good works that could get us into heaven. Rather, it is only God that can save us. We look to Christ. We look to Him. We see that He is the only one that, that, that can rescue us from our sin. His good works is what saves us, but not our own. Our second point, first one is only God can rescue us from ourselves. The our second is that only God can help us fight sin. When you look at this list of the, all the twelve sins, you need to understand that this is indeed our default setting, but it is not Jesus's. Jesus If you look at all 12 of these things, he is someone that have not failed in any of these. He is someone that, and it shows, again, just the purity of his own heart, that he is a holy God. In the Sunday school, uh, this past Sunday, we went through the the Harmony of the Gospels, and and I went back to that passage about how Jesus was in the wilderness, and he was fasting for 40 days. And I mentioned that during the time when Jesus was fasting, and really, when all of us fast, it really exposes what's in our hearts. When the stomach is empty, the heart is exposed. And Jesus, even in his most desperate and destitute time, he did not sin once against the Lord. And when we look at this list, when we look at how, how much we have fallen, it should, contra- it should make us think about how Jesus has surpassed and he, he was probably tempted in every single way, yet he did not sin. He is the only one that overcame sin, and that's what should help us fight sin. When we think about how Christ was able to overcome every single sin, and we fail every single uh, command of God, yet he died on the cross for us. It's that looking to Christ and how he fulfilled God's standard that should make us cherish Christ even more. Because we know that there's nothing about us that can fight sin. And the only thing that you can do to fight sin is actually not behavior modification, it's not putting something on your, um, on your phone so that you don't watch uh, inappropriate things. It's not even having an accountability partner. At the heart of what makes you desire to fight sin is to love Jesus Christ, is to love him. And out of that love of the Lord, that's why you would turn, over, turn from your sin. It has nothing to do with what you do externally because Pharisees were able to do some of these things as well. And what makes a difference between a person who's genuinely saved and someone who's just a, a Pharisee-like person is their dependence on the Lord. Is their humble acknowledgment that they can do nothing, that they cannot fight sin on their own. And the only way to overcome sin is when you love Jesus, have a greater appreciation for who Jesus Christ is. Really that's why he, uh, a few years ago I decided that we should go through the book of Mark, is to behold our God. It's to see him more so that we can glean from the Gospels how great our Savior is. So that we can live in a way filled with joy and assurance and, the, and just filled with loveliness because our God is a, is, is a lovely God. And when we look to Christ and when we look to what he's done for us on the cross, and we look to his perfect example and his perfect sacrifice and just his perfect life, it should cause and stir in our hearts a changed heart. It should, it, should, it should cause us to beat uh, according to God's word. It should make us want to live for him because our God is such a precious and lovely God. And that's what I hope for all of us. It's not, this message is not supposed to get us to just change our behavior, but to ask God to change our hearts for us, to take out the heart of stone and give us a heart that is made of flesh, that beats for the gospel. Let's close our time in prayer. Father God, Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, as we look at this list, we know that the solution is not to do better, but the solution is to love you more, and which results in us turning from those sins. Lord, it is indeed our natural tendency to love the things of the world, to love our flesh, to love the pleasures in life. Lord, cause us redirect our hearts to love you more, to cause us to love your word more so that we can find joy and happiness in you. Lord, we know there is nothing about us that can achieve righteousness or perfection, so we ask you to cleanse our hearts, to renew our minds, and cause us our hands our feet our eyes and all that we do to be pleasing to you. Lord, continue to humble our hearts. Allow us to see that all of us are sinners by nature, but you, God, are perfect by nature. Yet you died on the cross for us sinners, and although we deserve your judgment and your wrath, you paid it on the cross for us. Lord, may we behold the loveliness of your Savior so that we can live in a way that is most pleasing to you. In your Son's precious name, amen. I forgot to send the questions to the admin guys in terms of discussion groups, uh, but here's my question that I actually had in my mind, I just forgot to send it to them. Of the 12 things that we listed, which of the 12 do you find yourself struggling with most? Uh, that's really the question, just one question that you guys can have um, that you could discuss. Um, and maybe this follow-up would be like, how can I overcome this, this coming week? What is it about, what is it? That, uh, about these things that reveals my own heart that I need to repent of. Uh, so there's really those one question, but two parts. Which of the 12 that I struggle with? And how can I, over, how can I overcome th- these, whatever 12 you've decided to name? How do I overcome the sin um, in the coming week?